Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And welcome to the Secrets of Story podcast. I have to I have to actually take a moment to remind myself which podcast I'm recording right now because I've got two podcasts now and I had to go like wait what and what podcast am I welcoming people to I'm welcoming people to the Secrets of Story podcast. Oh, oh my gosh, back, you, everybody. You are so popular. You've got you've got so many projects. There are so many things that, you know, that you're you're juggling a lot of different uh, oranges here, you know. So those were two epic episodes we just did with Jonathan Oxier. I was yeah. I wound up totally overwhelming my poor readers on secretsofstory.com in that, you know, they were getting a bunch of episodes of Marvel Riri Club. They were getting, they had two episodes in rapid succession of Secrets of Story podcast. I was a guest on a different podcast called Pod Dylan, where they discussed the songs of Bob Dylan one episode at a time. I was a guest on that talking about Restless Farewell. You can find a link to that on secretsofstory.com as well. And I worried that because I was putting out so much content that people did not pay enough attention to our last two episodes, our last two Jonathan Roxy episodes. We got very few comments. I highly recommend that people go back and join us for a discussion about those episodes. I thought that especially author draft, artifact draft, audience draft, the Jonathan Oxy episode we did two episodes ago is one of the best episodes we've ever did. And I wish it had gotten more attention on secretsofstory.com. Uh, I think you, you need to learn how to bank content. You just I can't, do. Like, you, you, <laughs> you record something and then you immediately release it all the time. When you record something, that means you can relax for a while and not do anything. Or if you're recording stuff, just put it in the bank so you don't have to be constantly, frantically making stuff later. That's what I've come to realize. So anyway, now that we've stopped begging the listeners about one thing, let's beg the listeners about something else. I have a new book coming out. It's you coming too. out September 14th. It's called Dare to Know. Now, Matt, you know, I don't use this podcast to sell things. I don't use this podcast to badger people into actually putting down money for my content. But I'm telling you, this book, it has, I really want people to pre-order it. Because the more people pre-order it before it comes out, the better that is for me. The more like orders that we have before September 14th, it's, it's a complicated thing. Betsy, I think, may have explained it to you. Maybe you, maybe you knew about it. Pre-orders are good. I just got a thing. I found out that Dare to Know has been selected for the Indie Next list for September. That means independent booksellers around the country vote and they choose their top 25 books that are coming out in that month that they are going to be enthusiastically hand-selling. And Dare to Know made that list. So if you've been holding off thinking, well, I like to listen to James on the show, but I'm sure his books suck. All these booksellers are telling you now, it doesn't suck. So you should buy it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I, that's my appeal that I'm making to you. Uh, uh, please go and however you want to. I, I don't care if it's through your independent bookseller or even Amazon, whatever. Buy Dare to Know and you're going to love it. Great. Fantastic. All right. Well, that's wonderful news uh, about everything that is that is happening, everything that is coming up. This is an exciting time for you. Well, that is fantastic news. And I understand you have even more good news that you can't share yet. You're always you're always teasing us with uh, with good things you won't tell us about. So that's uh, good news as well. Everybody should go out and buy James's book. You will have an absolutely fantastic time reading it. All right. So, James, let's go ahead and get started on what we're here to talk about tonight. So I asked you to do something that you have been reluctant to do. Yeah. And I asked you to go ahead and do it. We were talking about what to talk about. We talked about one of the major things in my book that we have never discussed in 30 episodes of this podcast is irony. And yes. I was like, we should do an irony episode because that's one of my big things. That's one of my big deals. And I had 
At one point for a talk I'd given, I had talked about irony in three different movies. And I said, oh, that would make a good episode talking about irony in those three movies. But one of these three movies is a movie that James Kennedy had never seen, insanely. And I said, this would also be a good excuse to finally get James to watch this movie. And we can talk about irony in three movies. The three movies we talked about, I talked about wanting to discuss irony in are Casablanca. Great movie. Mulan. Great movie. And Blazing Saddles. Hmm. <laughs> Greatest movie. But that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. Let's, hear, let's go talk about what we're mainly here to talk about tonight. So no, again, it, is, it is true that I just want to let people know we are deleting a half hour of us arguing over Blazing Saddles. Let's just make that clear to the listener that we had a half hour long argument about Blazing Saddles. Okay, now let's go on. Now it's gone. Um, but we are here to talk to about irony. And this is one of the major ideas in the book, The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. It is back before The Secrets of Story podcast existed. I we used to be a regular guest on a podcast called The Narrative Breakdown. I talked about irony there. But partially because of that, we've never talked about it here. We've never really talked about it much here. It is something that I have a lot to say. I did do a video about it on The Secrets of Story YouTube channel that is specifically about irony and Mubon. At some point, I was giving a talk, I think, and I don't remember if I ever even actually gave this talk. And I said, let's just look at the sort of, how many ironies is this anyway? This is 14 ironies. I've sort of identified 14 types of irony that a story can have. And I picked out three movies where you would find these 14 ironies. I picked out Casablanca, Blazing Saddles, and Mulan. So let's go and talk about Irony. Now, I mean, so the big thing that I always talk about, I talk about this in my video, I talk about it here, I talk in my book, is that if I say to you, like, oh, I've, you're going to love my story, it's really ironic, then you're probably going to roll your eyes. Because when we talk about irony in storytelling, when people say ironic, like, oh, you're going to love my story, it's really ironic, then people are going to be like, oh, you mean sarcastic. I mean, the essence of my claim in my book, both of my books, is that irony is the heart of all meaning is that mm -hmm. irony is where meaning comes from in story, is that in a story, if something is meaningless, it's because it's not ironic. And if something is meaningful, it's because it's ironic. And that every different aspect of writing should be ironic, except for the one that most people mean, and that is tone. I think most stories should not have an ironic tone, but they should have an ironic concept. They should have ironic characters. They should have an ironic structure. They should so have you're, ironic you're Right, you're defining irony in a kind of more subtle way. It's not it doesn't mean cheap contradiction. Uh, it it has to be some kind of um, kind of interplay between opposites that says something about being human. I think irony is the nature of humanity. I think it is this gap between expectation and outcome. Irony is any meaningful gap between expectation and outcome. And I think that when we tell stories. What makes the story a story is the gap between expectation and outcome. It took me a long time to realize, as a writer, the importance of irony. And it was really over the course of writing the post that then became my first book that I sort of eventually realized that I just kept coming back to irony over and over and over again, to the point where that book wasn't specifically called The 14 Types of Irony, but it might as well have been. I ended up talking about irony a lot in that book. So let me talk about why I chose these three movies. So, I mean, Blazing Saddles is a, quote, ironic movie, end quote. It's got an ironic tone. It's taking the piss. It's interrogating its form. Then Casablanca is not interrogating the form, but it's got a very jaundiced and sarcastic lead character. So that's another thing that people sometimes mean when they call something an ironic movie. So I thought it'd be good 
look at that. But then for the third movie, Mulan is a sweet kids movie. It's not interrogating its form. It's not sarcastic. So it's not perceived as an ironic movie at all, but it's filled with wonderful ironies. So I thought that would be a good example of how every great movie has a lot of irony, even movies that we don't think of being ironic movies at all. Of the three movies we're going to be looking at today, only one of them has an ironic tone, and that is Blazing Saddles. And that, you know, Blazing Saddles is a commentary on movie making. In the finale of Blazing Saddles, the whole thing spills over out of the movie set they're on into other movie sets and becomes this huge fight. They go and watch the ending of their own movie in the theater, and then they see themselves in the ending of the own, of the movie interacting, but then they're eating the movie popcorn in <laughs> in the scenes that they're watching themselves watching in the theater. It's yeah, very, very ironic. Inventive, yeah. It's it's got an ironic tone, which uh certainly Milan and Casablanca do not. Would you and say it's ironic or would you say it's meta? Like what's the difference between ironic and meta? When you have certain ex- expectations for what movies are allowed to do, and then the movie shatters those expectations by having the character in the movie eating the popcorn while they're watching themselves in the movie, then that is breaking. That is a right. gap between yeah, expectation it's, and it's outcome. It's a question of whose expectation. I think with irony, dramatic irony, it's the expectations of the characters. With meta, it's the expectations of the audience. Yes, I agree. That's what I'm saying. Okay. It's a difference not in degree, but a difference in kind. Yes, I totally agree. And that is, yeah, that's why I think that this is not, that's why I sort of just have to get that off the table is Mm -hmm. go like, you know, when people say you're going to love my novel, it's so ironic. And I roll my eyes. (laughs) It's because that's what I'm, I'm afraid that's what you mean. Whereas Mm -hmm. I want, of course, your novel to be so ironic. Every novel that I read, I'm like, oh, good. I hope this is full of irony, but I hope it's not quote ironic, unquote. (laughs) <laughs> so I think that, yes, I think that what we're saying is the same thing, is that to call one thing irony and to call another thing irony is to make the term almost meaningless. So that's why I just wanted to sort of dismiss. And I, I think it's good to have great place examples as one of the examples of showing like that ironic tone can work, that mm-hmm. you can play with having an ironic tone. And Blazing Cells does play with an ironic tone and does get a lot of comedy out of it. And it's very funny, but it's not... It's not, it's the riskiest type of irony to actually take the piss out of yourself, to take right. the piss out of your art form, to take the piss out of the basic expectations somebody has going in. I that agree. That, like, is, I think not, like, yeah. that, that is not the heart of irony. That right. is not, that, that is, that is a dangerous type of irony. That and you I think can maybe use. that's why community never really caught on with a lot of people, why I always performed so badly, because they kept making that meta move. Whereas Casablanca, like, so I wouldn't say Mulan does not feel ironic in that kind of sarcastic sense at all, or that meta no. sense. But Casablanca might not be meta in the sense that Blazing Saddles or, say, community is, but it is sardonic, yes. right? It, yes, it, it, it is the way that Mulan is not. So both Blazing Saddles and Casablanca are sardonic. What's the difference, yeah. difference between sardonic and ironic? Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick Blaine, is a sarcastic character. He is, in a way that certainly Mulan is not, he has someone who you could say has a jaundiced outlook on life, has a certain sardonic outlook on life, has a certain, one might even say, ironic outlook on life. But, you know, so it's a movie that has a bit more of that element to it. But that's why I wanted to have these three examples. That's why I wanted to look at irony in these three different movies, because they are sort of on three different levels. One is, you know, a very open and honest kids movie. One is a movie that is an extremely meta, extremely meta, extremely sarcastic, extremely, you know, taking the piss sort of movie. And one is a movie that is not interrogating its form, but is certainly a movie that is, would be considered a sarcastic, well, not even sarcastic, but a movie that, yeah, would be considered a sardonic movie. Yeah, I think sardonic is the word for it. 
uh, everybody is sardonic. Everybody, for, like, there's a policeman who doesn't enforce the law. There's the idealist who is a cynic. There is the uh, kind of the, the hero who's a bit of a stuffed shirt. Uh, um, there, there's the married woman who is unfaithful. Like there, there are sardonic things happening all over the place. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, in a way that's not a Mulan. And I think these are the valuable and I mean, Casablanca is clearly the best of these three movies. Yes. Uh, um, and, <laughs> and, 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 and there's a reason why, I mean, it, it cuts down to, you know, human truths in, in a way, in, in a kind of a, a um, um, in, in a forgiving way, like, uh, Casablanca does not, uh, Rick Blaine might kind of judge, say there's that shadow couple that's kind of in the same situation as Laszlo and uh, Ilsa. And, and then the woman says, oh, my husband's going, you know, he wants me to, they, he doesn't know, but I think I can get these papers by essentially uh, having sex with Captain Renault. And we're not necessarily invited to judge her. In fact, we're kind of invited to judge Rick for judging her, for what she's doing. And then when Rick does the thing in the casino and you know, kind of uh, helps her out and, and, and cheats so that her husband makes enough money so they can get out. You, you know, we're relieved, but we're kind of like, we feel how desperate these people are. It's a broad-minded, human, like, forgiving movie of people. At the very end, you know, the, the, even people are very oddly forgiving of each other. Ilsa pulls a gun on Rick and then a minute later, they're kissing. Rick pulls a gun on, on Renault. And then a couple minutes later, they're saying, I think this is the start of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like it's forgiving. And the characters are weirdly forgiving of each other. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a movie about humanity in, in all right. of its forms. And about just everybody being at the worst moment of people acting the worst that they ever did in modern history. Being and the tested. best. And and acting the best in some ways, the greatest generation, as you might say these days. It's yeah, it's certainly <laughs> as one might have said, or as Tom Brokaw might have said in two thousand two. I mean, yes. you, you 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 might have to update your references. <laughs> yes, I was using that term ironically, as one might say. <laughs> um, I was using that term somewhat sarcastically. Yeah, but... I think it's sarcasm, which is not quite irony. Uh, Sar- I, I think that's I think another sar- thing. That... Sarcasm is a form of irony. Sarcasm is definitely a form of irony. The, the cheapest form of irony. Yes, sarcasm is the cheapest form of irony. It's it's the uh, it's like rain on your wedding day form of, of irony. <laughs> no, that rain on your wedding day is just flat out not irony. That is a it's bummer. Unfortunate things that are happening. Yeah, rain on your wedding day is not irony. Um, so all right, so let's go ahead and let's look at fourteen different types of irony. So I when I divide up my book, I divide up my book into seven different concepts, seven different disciplines of writing, and then I talk about how each one should be ironic. So let's start. Let's start with concept. So your story will be more meaningful if you present if you present a fundamentally ironic concept. So, for instance, I say that Casablanca, the least patriotic American, has to save the Allied cause. Well, that, I mean, not to nitpick, but he's not the least patriotic American, right? And he's not quite saving the entire Allied cause. Okay, yes, but I mean, maybe you it would be see, like but you a, can somewhat un, a somewhat not very patriotic American, maybe he was patriotic at some point, you know, does something to help the Allies. 
Yes, but you can see why I would phrase it that way for the purpose of pointing out the irony here. Oh, yeah, to, to, to punch it up a bit. <laughs> to punch <laughs> to, it up. To, yeah, to kind of save Casablanca from itself. Okay, go on. Uh, so, or then you would say in Blazing Saddles, a racist old West Town is saved by a black sheriff. That's very oh, ironic. That's, and safe, Mulan, that's fair. A woman warrior in saves China in medieval times. So, you know, at a time when women were seen as the least likely to people to be great warriors, a woman warrior saves China. So this is, these are fundamentally ironic concepts. You look at the poster of these movies, you look at the poster of Mulan, the poster is ironic. The greatest warrior in ancient China is a woman, is mm-hmm. a little girl who is not at all what you would expect. So then- uh, sidebar, have you seen the live action Mulan? I have. Did, is it any you? good? N- no. no. <laughs> it's It's interesting. It's worth seeing. I think you're enjoy- you and your girls might enjoy it. Um, uh, it. My girls took one look at it and they say, are there any songs? And I said, no. And they said, we're not interested. They cut out the songs, which is a heartbreaker. You know, they wouldn't, the songs wouldn't have, I mean, they've, they've fundamentally reconceived the story. So the songs would, you know, would not have worked. It's fascinating. They took, you would think that if you were to make a version of Mulan in 2021, you would go like, okay, it's Mulan and she's transgender, which is to say he's transgender. And... They, this is for this. They want to please people in China. That is not going to fly. I think you have a completely different idea of what how marketing works. <laughs> you think it's all based on like uh, like ten thousand people on Twitter. It's based on like like five hundred million people in China uh, who have never heard of the word transgender. So okay, go on. They do not go that direction. Yeah. And they, 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 it's fascinating. I don't, I don't, I think we should not get into it, but, uh, cause it's a whole nother thing. Well, yeah, I, I already want to get into it. It's, it's, it's worth watching, watch with you, watch with your daughters. But I thought it ultimately is nowhere near as good as the original. So that's irony number one, the fundamentally ironic concept. Irony number two says that I talk about irony in character. So I talk about there are three ways to have ironic characterization. Your hero will be more compelling if they have an ironic backstory. So here we have, you know, Rick seems like this supremely cynical bar owner. He seems like he is tremendously cynical. It's always been tremendously cynical. And then we find out that he actually used to work with the resistance. And he has this extremely sentimental backstory that we find out of him having his heart broken back in Paris. So we have an I So this based on who he is now, it turns out his backstory is very ironic that when the townspeople see Bart ride up as the black sheriff in Blazing Saddles, he is riding in town as this very proud figure, but then it turns out that he is actually was on the gallows not that long before he's well, got an ironic I mean, backstory. also, the other ironic thing is that he's black. Yes. You don't expect a black <laughs> sheriff. I mean, I, I think you're kind of burying the lead there. The, the yeah, most ironic thing is that he's black. Right, right. But that's but that's more like the fundamentally ironic concept is that he's black, but he is, his backstory is not what you would he's expect. A track layer or if he's a lawyer. The fact that he's black <laughs> is the ironic thing, but go on. Okay, and then Mulan, she gets this elaborate training in the beginning about how a girl can bring her family great honor in one way by making a good match, and today might be the day, that she has been trained for nothing else in her life other than to be the perfect wife and the perfect bride, and that then she ends up being the greatest warrior in ancient China. But so she's not she very has... good at it. Like, Rick was good at being an idealist. He became a cynic. But Mulan was trained to be the perfect bride, but she was like clumsy and kind of messing it up, you know. So I guess there's a little bit of a difference there, right? Well, they each failed. I mean, Rick's Rick's idealism failed him. 
and Mulan's domestic, I would not say inclination because it wasn't inclination, but a domestic role that she had been assigned failed her. And certainly Bart's trackling failed him that, you know, they (laughs) each... (laughs) If only he could have, you you know, really nailed it as a track layer, I think he would have been much happier. And also the thing that that kind of uh, made Rick unhappy wasn't the, I mean, it was the fact that Ilsa left him. And that's, I mean, he was a bar owner in Paris. He's a bar owner in Casablanca. They just seemed to be a happier bar owner in Paris. Um, yeah. But like, was he running guns when he was living in Paris? He didn't seem That's to be. That's not clear. The, yeah. the timeline is not clear. But so they talk about how another type of ironic, ironic character work is ironic contrast between their exterior and their interior. So Rick the Cynic is filled with tender heartache. We have this one of the greatest scenes of all time where Bart arrives in town and everybody wants to kill him as soon as he arrives in town. And the only way he can get out of it is to take himself hostage and it is it is such a wonderful scene i talked about it on i wrote a whole blog post about it about how this is wb du bois's dual consciousness turned into a masterpiece comedic scene and you've got this guy who it's like okay everybody in town wants to kill me i'm going to take myself hostage become terrified of myself and tell everybody like back off he'll kill him it's like he's just crazy enough to do it and then take myself hostage, uh, drag myself into the sheriff's office, and so I can take over my duties as sheriff. So obviously with Mulan, you've got this big thing of when will my reflection show who I am inside? So she has, she, I mean, it's very hard not to read the movie now as this is a movie about what it is like to be transgender. This is what it is like to be someone who, for whom, you know, she's wiping off her makeup in the scene talking about when will my reflection show who I am inside. Hold on. Does that, I mean, I think she is clearly a woman throughout Mulan. I mean, now we might be tempted to write a Mulan in which like, oh, this is all about finding, oh, actually I'm a man. But throughout this, I don't think she's ever in any doubt. Oh, I am in my nature, a woman, and I am putting on this mask of a man in order to uh, get this objective. Like if we were to make it now, maybe it would be different. But back then, I don't think I think these things were very separate. I read Mulan as transgender, but, but um, why would she fall in love, you know, in a straight way with the 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 guy who's the captain of the guard? Like I, it, it seems. I think seems she like, is. I think she's a gay transgender man. I think he is a gay transgender man. But okay, but I, okay. Now you're taking another step away from the received wisdom about it. So I mean, I, I mean, I guess you can say anything you want if you take another en- enough steps away from the received you know, wisdom about something, but it seems like that that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I I think, yeah, I've seen this movie a lot of times. I, I think I've, I've seen it a lot of times too. But yeah, I mean, it's... My, uh, way of, my way of reading the movie is that Mulan is a gay transgender man, but, um, but let's not you, get you, you must admit that most people do not read the movie that way. I don't know. I think a lot of people do, but... I, I, I would say most people, and I think this is... I'm pretty Pretty firm ground here that I bet you could find some people who would read the movie you're you're doing the way that you're doing it. But I think most people, the vast majority, probably over ninety percent, and that's generous to you, would read it as like this is a woman who is putting on the guise of a man in order to win a war, and and then she happens to fall in love with a guy in a heterosexual way because that's the black letter. The, you, you know, a uh, thing that's in the script and in the text. I think that there's a lot in that text. 
I think it's a jam-packed text, but uh, but I think that uh, yeah, no, I agree that I agree the movie can be read that way, and I think most people do read it that way. I agree, and you no, know, I I don't think it's I don't I wouldn't say that this is like you know I don't change I don't refer to Moana as he I refer to Moana as she. Well, there you go. I mean, then the game is up. But I think it could be read either way. But let's not get into that. It, it, it's kind of queer baiting in that way. You, you know? Yeah. You've heard that oh, term. I think there's certainly there's certainly a lot of queer baiting. Um, I think that the song Reflection is a queer baiting song. <laughs> like I think that you know you listen to Reflection, you're like, mm-hmm, hmm. but uh, just like... I, I never took it that way. But I, <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I, yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting because in the 2020 live remake of Mulan, they mostly removed the songs, but they do use just the melody of Reflection at one point. But they completely reverse its meaning. They play that melody when she's removing her male armor and showing her fellow soldiers that she's female. And they're clearly saying that now, without the armor, her reflection shows who she is inside. There's this whole weird thing in the movie about how it's dishonorable for her to pretend to be a man. That's basically Wait, is her this the 2020 version? Is this the, the 2020, 2020 live action version. Okay. In okay. the 2020 live action version, there's this weird thing in the movie where they're saying it's like dishonorable for her to pretend to be a man. And that's basically her flaw in the movie. And she has uh-huh. to do the right thing and admit she's a woman and stop lying to the army. And this was, to put it mildly, not in the original movie at all. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, in reflection in the original, like, I don't remember, like, what was the point of that song? She's, I mean, she's wiping, she's, she looks at her reflection and she's got all this makeup on and she sings, when will my reflection show who I am inside? And then she wipes all the makeup off her face. And, Ah. and, you know, she's clearly saying like, my reflection is showing this girly girl and that's not who I am inside. And let me remove my feminine aspects and just show my unmade up face and then my reflection will show who I am inside. And in the remake, it was like, oh, I've been wearing this man's armor. That's not who I really am inside. Let me take it off. And then you just hear a little snippet of da, 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 da. Oh, Matt, what, what are the lyrics of reflection? <laughs> when will my reflection show who I am inside? Wait, hold on. I think I've almost got it. Could you sing it? When will my reflection show who I am inside? That's great. You'll never be on the Supreme Court now. <laughs> I've got compromise on you. You've got compromise. Okay. Milan cannot have a bigger ironic contrast between her exterior and her interior. She feels that when everybody sees this perfectly made up bride, that they are not seeing who she is inside, that there's a big gap. But she's not perfectly made up. She's bad at it, right? I mean, she's... She's she, kind of she bad at being this beautiful. She eventually woman gets no. She eventually they eventually get her into perfect makeup, and then okay, and then she has to then wipe it off. All right, so that brings us to number four, which is the third type of character irony: a great flaw that's the ironic flip side of a great strength. So this is a big part of what I talk about in my book. In both of my books, characters should all have great flaws. This is well known. Characters should have great strengths, and one of the things that I talk about more than some other people talk about is that these need to be the ironic flip side of each other, that it's hard to abandon the flaw without abandoning the strength. It's hard to hang on to the strength without also hanging on to the flaw. With both Rick and Bart, there are people who, I mean, Rick and Bart are somewhat similar characters. They're both very sarcastic characters. They're both very unflappable characters. So Rick's big flaw scene is when the Nazis come and aggress Ugardi, and Ugardi begs Rick to intercede with him with the Nazis, and Rick won't do it, and the Nazis drag Ugardi out of Rick's arms, and take him away and kill him. And then one of Rick's customers says, 
gee, Rick, when they come for me, I hope you're, you do more to help me than you did to help Ugarty. Yeah, that and, was a weird scene because it was like, if I was at a Target and the police came and like, they dragged somebody out, like, I want to go to the manager and say, hey, I also shop here. Like, what does Rick have to do with that? Like, he's not like the sheriff. It, 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 it's an odd, it was an odd, it, it struck me I mean, as he odd saw that he it. Everybody he's saw not, it. But, but he's not like the daddy of, you know, of Casablanca. He's just a guy who runs this place that's under the jurisdiction of the Nazis. It seemed odd to me when the guy said it. He's like, how much do you expect from Rick? Like, like I mean, <laughs> I say this as somebody who I feel the hero of the Bible is Pontius Pilate. Number one, <laughs> because he refused to be edited. Um, he said, what I've written, I've written. But also because... Um, <laughs> that, that's your idea. That's your idea of a hero is people who refuse to be edited. Okay. Uh, um, but also he's like, I'm just a guy who's doing my job. Like, okay, here I am, you know, kind of just a Roman guy, just kind of doing my work day out by five. They say, oh, here comes a guy who says he's the, the, the king of the Jews. And he's like, oh, well, is he? He's like, well, no, we, they, we usually execute these people. He's like, okay, fine, do that. I'm going to go home to my wife. He did not know that he was part of this world historical thing. He's just a guy who was just doing his normal job. I love Pontius Pilate. He's very lovable. He's maybe the first modern character in all of literature uh, of just like a guy who's doing his job. And and I feel the same way about Rick Blaine here. It's just like, people say, why didn't you save him? I was like, what the fuck do you expect me to do? I'm running a bar. I'm not like, I'm not Victor Laszlo, you know? He's going along with the Nazis. No, no, but, but, but I mean, okay, Matt, you will agree that this is the very crux of the thing, that it's not, so. I mean, that's the very crux of the movie, you, you know, of like we when you go along, when you how... not, not go along, like you can't be a hero every single second of the day is what Casablanca is about. Yeah, you, uh, it's um, that way, it's a very painful, I mean, we are definitely... When when they when the Nazis come and pull, you know, and certainly we don't like Ugardi. Rick has said, I stick my neck out for no one. And we're like, yeah, we don't if Rick's gonna stick his neck out for anybody, we don't want him to be Ugardi. He seems like a very sleazy, slimy character who he probably killed the people these people to, yeah. to get these letters of transit. You and, know, like the way he looks, he's a kind of a weird looking guy. He looks like a frog. <laughs> yeah. And so then but 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 we definitely, I mean, definitely our moment, our care moment of Believe, Care, Invest, you know, our care moment for Rick is when the Nazis pull Ugarty out of his hand and he's begging Rick for help and Rick won't help him. And then somebody says to Rick, I hope you do more for me when they come for me. You know, when the Nazis, the Nazis, these are Nazis come for me, I hope you'll stand up for them. And, you know, and then Rick finds that he will. But that is his big humiliation moment is when uh-huh. that person says that to him. And I don't think it's, I don't think this is something where it's like, oh, this is phony movie humiliation. I think that's a realistic humiliation. I think that that's something someone really would have said to Rick. And I think that's something that really would have hurt him. And I can understand what it hurt him. Although, yeah, I mean, it's because it's a testament to what a great film it is that we can totally see his point of view and we can totally see why he acted that way in that situation. Yeah, and so we could I, also I, see... I, and I think that that's the reason it works. It's not like somebody trips and they fall onto a pie. Everybody says, ha ha. They're like, oh, I care about that guy. He tripped and fell into a, a pie. The, you know, it's, it's like there's also a reason why he did it and a good reason, you know, a, self, you know, a, a, a self-preserving reason. And it, it's like, if you, would you be so brave, you know, Matt, if you were in that situation, maybe you wouldn't, you, you know? And so like, it's, it's kind of like we, we, we we feel it in a deeper way than if it's somebody tripping and falling into a pie because it's one of those many moral compromises that we all might make. 
And right. basically, we all make all the time are the, the phones and computers that we use are made by slaves and so are our clothes. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But so so Rick's flaws that he's too cold-blooded, but his strength is that he's very cool and we love him. We love his attitude towards life. Our number one movement where we really come to love Rick is when Renault is saying to him, like, I don't know anything about you, Rick. You know, you keep everything so secret. Why did you come to Casablanca? And he says, I came for the waters. He says, but Rick, we're in the middle of a desert. Like, I was misinformed. Yeah. And we love this guy at this point. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, it, we're like it's, so it's cool. Also, it's also weird. It's like, but we, like, let's say we just scrambled up the roles and had the guy who played Renault play Rick. And Humphrey Bogart played Claude Rains' character. We wouldn't love him as much if Claude Rains said, I was misinformed. Like, Part of being cool is just looking like a cool guy. And we kind of, that, that scene would have been totally scrambled if Claude Rains had said, I'm misinformed. You know, a lot of this depends on the actor. Yeah, well, that's, that was the heart of the studio system. But uh, no, no, yes. but I just mean, not just, this is, goes beyond the studio system. This is just like, why did they have Joel McHale play Jeff Winger in Community and not, you, you know, the guy who plays Professor Duncan? You, you know, there's a reason, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, the, it's like, we like. The guy who plays <laughs> Professor Duncan, the man's name is John Oliver. <laughs> Uh, um, but you, you know what I mean. Like, 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 there, there is something that goes beyond mere screenwriting. Like, yeah. a, only a oh, cool yeah. guy oh, yeah. can play a cool guy. You know, and it doesn't matter how well you write him. Like, only a cool guy can say, "I was misinformed." You know. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it, but I, I think that's a. It, it's not just all in the text. So go on. Yeah. Okay. So then, and we can see that the same quality that is both his positive and negative quality are tied to each other. And they're going to be hard to get rid of without getting, getting rid of one without getting rid of the other. Um, so then Barton blazing saddles, it's a somewhat similar quality. His flaw is that he just can't stop himself from attacking his boss with a shovel and getting himself sent to the gallows, even though he knows that attacking his boss with a shovel is not the best way out of his situation is not right. The, he's not. It's not made out of anger. He does it in a very cool way. You know, he's yeah. kind of like the, the <laughs> shovel is sitting there. His friend says, "Don't do it," and he just kind of like very. And we, he just kind of does it. And he does it in such a way like there's a comedic aspect to it. Like the guy standing next to the guy he brains with the shovel doesn't even notice. You know, <laughs> right. um, and and it, it's 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 not. I think it's almost essential that it's not done out of anger or out of passion. Because if he did, like the very essence of his character is that he's cool, that he doesn't yeah. do things out of anger or passion. Good point. Um, yeah, totally. That he, you know, he's like, don't do it, don't do it. Like, what does he say? It's like, I got to do it. He says something to the effect of like, sorry, I just got to. And then, you know, attacks the guy with shovel, gets sent to the gallows. And then he gets this amazing opportunity to then try over and see if he can keep his cool this time. And is quickly put into this new situation where he is about to be killed. And then he has to think his way out of it. But, right. But I guess the, the thing is, like, if he had been overcome with passion, it wouldn't have worked as well. Yeah, you know? I totally agree. So Bart's self-destructively defined, which almost gets him killed. But the flip side of that is that he's charming and funny, which saves his life many times. He is is self-destructively to... defined thing? Maybe it's just that he's nihilistic or, or like, not nihilistic, <laughs> but he's he's like Bill Murray. Like he knows he's in a movie. You, you know, <laughs> he, he like he, I, guess, I guess he's no regard for personal safety <laughs> might, might be or like doesn't care if he lives or dies, but is optimistic or self-destructively defiant sounds like it could, it, it doesn't quite hit the mark of what he is. And maybe the fact that we can't quite describe it in words is part of the reason why the character works so much. He's cool. Like cool in the sense of like, he's 
utterly unruffled no matter what he does. Self-destructively defiant doesn't quite describe that because it sounds like somebody's a bit of a hothead and he's not a hothead, right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. He keeps he keeps his cool even when he does the thing that he knows will send him to the gallows. Yeah, we could we could go back and forth about it, uh, trying to identify exactly what his flaw and strength are. But let's let's keep moving. Okay, so then Milan just can't follow the rules, no matter how hard she tries. Which she does try too, getting her in trouble. Yeah, she she's, she very much. Unlike, she's not like Bart. She really does want to succeed. You know. Yeah, so you've got at the beginning, she's going to be sent to a matchmaker and she's trying to please the matchmaker. She just wants to please, she just wants to fulfill her role that she can't fulfill. And so she writes a cheat sheet on, she paints a, in Chinese characters, a cheat sheet on her arm in order to remind herself how to act around the matchmaker so that the matchmaker can help her make a good match. And then she then gets nervous and the paint runs and then the woman grabs her arm and gets the paint and ends up painting the paint on her own face. So that's an irony right there. <laughs> this thing that was supposed to help her ends up hurting her, right. uh, the, the paint. But her flaw is that she can't follow the rules no matter how hard she tries. And her strength is that... She doesn't follow the rules. <laughs> and her strength is that she decides not to follow the rules. She puts out her dad's armor and right. goes and uh, fights in the war. Right? Like she. Yeah. So that's. I mean, well, I mean that's perfect. her strength. That's her strength. Perfect. Her strength is that her instincts are better than the better than the rules. That her what what she does instinctually turns out to be better than what was the right thing to do than what was the thing that right, she, but that's not an, she wanted to do. I mean, frankly, it's not an irony, right? I mean, the irony is that she's a rule breaker, and in one one sense, rule breaking hurts her until the story in terms of the story the rule breaking helps her like right. the instinct versus rule breaking is not an irony rule breaking good versus rule breaking bad um that is an irony yeah well, yeah no she, you, you you got it she well brings today. honor to the family by breaking the rules yeah right yeah the, so that is an irony Yes, that is an irony. She brings honor to the family by breaking the rules. So then, okay, so that's three different types of ironic character work. Then, you know, I talk about in terms of structure, generally speaking, you don't want to be like, oh, I've got an ironic structure. You know, again, your sort of sounds like you're talking about having an ironic tone. But I just talk about how the heart of structure, I talk about problem, opportunity, conflict, which is another thing we could probably devote a whole episode to, but that the whole story that is happening to your hero is usually in some way something awful that is happening to your hero but it's just the opportunity they need and mm. that i mean certainly there's no better example of this than milan i mean again this is me reading her as transgender but if you read you her don't as need to read her as transgender to make this point though so why don't you you don't, don't go for the strong claim go for the the <laughs> the, the broader claim Right. But I mean, she's saying when will she's wiping her makeup off and saying, when will my reflection show who I am inside? I don't want to wear this makeup. And then she gets a heck of an opportunity to stop wearing makeup. She does not want to be in this situation. She does not want to have to go fight in the war to take her father's place. But she and she's doing it strictly because she has to strictly because she has to take her father's place. But it's also giving her an opportunity that she wants to a certain extent, the way I read it. And her reflection is going to show who she is inside once she gets out there and starts fighting. So yeah, well, let's go back and look. So Rick finds heroic fulfillment by being placed in a deadly situation and having his heart ripped up again. Bart finds heroic fulfillment by being placed in a deadly situation. Mulan joins the army. Her reflection shows who she is inside. That these are all characters who Bart ends up, finds himself on the gallows, which turns out to be the best possible place for him. It turns out to be the place where he finds his he finds his life's purpose can i, on can a, I put a little more yeah. can, can i put it a little more strongly 
Yes. He goes from being an outlaw to being an enforcer of the law. Yes. And he goes from somebody being victimized by white people to becoming a, a friend and protector of white people. Yes. Uh, um, the, he becomes friends with a, uh, Gene Wilder's character. Uh, um, and so that is the irony. You, you know, uh, the, the, it's, it's, it's a very precise irony there. Going well, that's one gal- of, that's, I would call that one of the other ironies. I would call that one of the later ironies. But, but at this point... But going from an outlaw to an enforcer of the law means something. Uh, going yes. from somebody who is trying... The, white people are trying to kill him to a white person becomes his best friend who defends him is more precise and more meaningful than just saying deadly situation. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I was zipping through this part of the sheet. Oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to strengthen yeah. your no, point. No, no, no. You're right. You're making the, a stronger point than I'm making. You're I, making it, a point that you know. Yes, this, this is a fundamentally. You know, you're getting at the. You're sort of going back, but you're sort of going back and filling in what I, what I, what I could have said at the beginning in terms of fundamentally ironic concept. You're pointing out other ways in which these are fundamentally ironic concepts. Or, or similarly, it's not so much that Rick is played in it. His heroic fulfillment doesn't come from being placed in a deadly situation and having his heart ripped up again. It's it's the fact that he is being put in a situation in which he can actually show his ideals. Yeah. Um, um, and and that and also he's being placed in a situation where he can prove that he's gotten over her. Yes. Um, which true. he hasn't gotten over her, and that's his problem that he hasn't gotten over her. Like uh, Sam, the piano player, knows he hasn't gotten over her. She knows that he hasn't gotten over <laughs> her. Um, yeah. And he deep down knows he hasn't gotten over her. Uh, and now he can prove, yeah, I've gotten over you. Go, and I'm going to prove it. It's not enough to say I've gotten over you. It's never enough to just say something, especially in a work of drama. You have to do a irreversible action that proves that you mean it. And here, it's like he gives her the papers of transit or whatever they're called, and he lets her go off with Laszlo, um, and, and then he puts his life on the line doing it, um, shooting Strasser and, and and jeopardizing his relationship with Renault. Um, and it gives him a chance. It gives him a chance to to redo this most painful relationship in his life and end it on his terms this time instead of ending it on her terms. Right. So let's not just say it was a deadly situation. Right. 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 I I was just I was just sort of I was just sort of zipping past this part on uh, the thing by by quickly filling that in. Uh, but but let's but so that's that's structure. Let's go ahead and go on to scene work. Each scene will be more meaningful if the hero encounters a turn of events that upset some pre-established ironic presumptions about what would happen. I always talk about having a prep scene. I always talk about having a scene in which you make clear what the hero's presumptions are for the town. So when Bart is strutting through the desert, he's got Count Basie there performing his theme music. He is riding high. Like literally and figuratively, he is cannot wait to go into town and get to be his new sheriff. And then he is. We know treated. that he's not. He, we know that he's not going to be welcomed warmly. I think it's and kind he of like knows a, on some level. I mean, yeah, he yeah. knows, but he is. But he's he's dressed so nicely. He's loving his new duds. He's loving everything. He's not mm-hmm. willing to admit it until he finds himself in this situation. I mean, I, I think I, I, the way that uh, Bart is played, he's very much an Obama character. You know, he's relentlessly honest, uh, or I mean, relentlessly upbeat, uh, kind of like yes. always willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. 
uh, willing to help out a bunch of ungrateful white people, <laughs> uh, um, and, and and kind of like see like you know the 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 old terrible white woman calls him the n word, and then like and then like she after he defeats Mungo, she comes and like gives him a pie and says, "I hope you don't tell anybody what I said about you." And he's also kind of like what every kind of like white person hopes that a black person would be like in some way, you know, like <laughs> very much. He is totally Obama. Now I yeah. totally want to rewatch this movie and look at him as an Obama type figure. He is right, right. very and, much the, the perpetually cool headed peacemaker type figure of as Obama. But and, okay, and, yet the people that he's saving, the, even though he does everything right, still not, <laughs> you know, given the benefit of the doubt. And of course we can make, you know, like broader political discussions about Obama and like what actually happened in those eight years and whether or not he just papered over problems that led to Trump. But in terms of like what he meant culturally to this country, I think he's very much like Bart in terms of like, he was a very digestible black person, but you know, a lot of white people are not digestible and yet the country is forced to digest them. Obama had to bend over backwards to be digestible. He did. He did. I would certainly agree with that. So, okay, well, let's go ahead and I think likewise, the conclusion of each scene will be more meaningful if the character's actions result in an ironic scene outcome in which the events of the scene ironically flip the original intention, even if things turn out well for the hero. Um, What does that mean? So let's look at Mulan. One of the reasons I wanted to examine Mulan in the video I made about it irony is that I think people could think like, oh, children are pre-ironic. Children don't understand irony. Irony should play no part in a children's story that you want to make sure you have a non-ironic story. And every line in Mulan is ironic. And certainly every line in the songs is Mulanic. So they, you just they said do Mulanic. the whole song. Mulanic. <laughs> <laughs> every line is, is Mulanic. Every line is ironic. They have the song, Make a Man Out of You. Now it's time to make a man out of you. Did they send me daughters when I asked for sons? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, okay, yes. Ironically, what you don't know is that they did send you a daughter when you asked for sons. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you're going to make a man out of him. Well, you know, ironically, this person is a woman. They're saying that in order to win, we're going to have to make a man out of you. Well, in fact, as it turns out, in order to defeat the bad guys, Moan will eventually show the male warriors that they have to dress up in drag to break into the palace of concubines. So Irony. they all end up in makeup. So she, in fact, has to make a woman out of them in order for them to win the day. Do they do that in the 2020 adaptation? I don't. Re- I don't think so. I don't. It. It. It was no. They definitely don't. It's I mean, not that sort of movie. Yeah, I. I did. I mean, I. I probably mentioned this earlier, but I did not see it, and it seemed extremely unappealing. Yeah, it was very serious. It was. You know, it's. It's fascinating. They added a witch. They. They added all sorts of stuff. There's some good kung fu action filmmaking in it you know like it's sort of fun to watch it's you know if i i watch it with my kids but if i'd been exercising to it i probably could have gotten some good exercise out of it in both the live action one and the anime one she is given a task to do that involves her having you know all of the men showing that they have a lot of arm strength and in the live action one because it's 2021 she just shows more arm strength than the rest of the men boring she just she is just capable of doing this thing that requires more arm strength that the rest of the men cannot. Which You're is not one me on this movie, yeah. That is one way of doing a strong female protagonist. Like, she is a strong female protagonist. She is oh, stronger cool. than the men. And the animated movie, she has less arm strength than the men. So she is assigned, they're all assigned to do this task where the Chang shoots 
an arrow into the top of a post, and he says, you've got to climb the post to get the arrow, but I'm going to tie these sashes to your wrist with big heavy weights on them and see if then you can climb the post and nobody can. And it's made clear that she has the least chance of now being able to climb the post because she has less arm strength than the men that she is with. Eventually, she fails at everything. He says, pack up, go home, you're through. But then, and she packs up to leave, but then she says, wait, I'm going to go back to this task. I'm going to hang these heavy weights with these sashes in my arms, and I'm going to flip them around each other and turn them into a knot. And I'm going to use that knot to form a harness and pull myself up the post and then get the arrow. And He's going to be clever. Prove, I, I'm going to prove that I'm more clever and that even though I don't have as much arm strength, I am going to then go ahead and achieve this task that no one else could achieve and prove that keep my place in the army, not go home. And it is the ultimate ironic scene outcome, right? Yeah, you she know. It. yeah it's ironic because she, you know, uh, impresses Donny Osmond with her <laughs> arm strength. Donny Osmond, indeed, flashing. Uh, obviously, these days, we would not have all of these white. Uh, she was played by a Chinese-American actress. Okay, so that's ironic scene work. Now let's look at ironic dialogue. Now, I mean, obviously, when you say ironic dialogue, the most obvious type of ironic dialogue is just sarcasm. Sarcasm is a type of irony. It is a the cheapest between expectation form. and outcome. And all three of these movies have some sarcasm in them. Even in Mulan, she is not sarcastic. But at one point, the inspector is there and the inspector, you know, sees somebody doing something that's unimpressive and he says, most impressive. You know, so that's, mm-hmm. you know, okay, so that's sarcastic dialogue. Uh, obviously, Rick engages in a lot of sarcastic dialogue. You know, my favorite line is someone says to him, like, Rick, has anyone ever told you that you're a pretty terrible person or something like that? And his is, oh, yes, I stay up late at night crying about it. And then obviously, Blazing Saddles cannot have more sarcasm. You might even be, dare I say, president. And Bart says, dare, dare. So yeah. all these movies have sarcastic dialogue. But then you've got other types of, there's other types of irony in dialogue. So you have unintentionally ironic dialogue, such as when there's an ironic contrast between word and deed. Well, okay, in terms of ironic contrast between word and deed, I didn't really find a great example in any of these three movies. They That's sort of not what these three movies are doing. They had lots, they had every other Wait, type on of the irony contrary, I was looking for. On the contrary, um, in, in uh, famously in Casablanca, shocked, I'm shocked at all this uh, um, gambling going on. Here's your winnings, uh, Captain Renault. Oh, thank you. The, shut that's it all good, down. That's a good example. That's It's a good example. It's still not a perfect example because it's, you know, because he's aware that what he's saying is disingenuous. Oh, I, wait, well, hold on. D- does I- irony necessarily have to be not on purpose? It's tricky. I mean, so here's, and so I was thinking about it. I was going like, you know, I couldn't find a perfect example I was talking about. And then an example occurred to me from another movie, a movie I have not seen since seeing it in the theater in 1986, but I remember just this one scene, and that was the movie Ruthless People. Do you remember the movie Ruthless People? Oh, I thought you were going to mention another movie from 1986, The NeverEnding Story. Like That <laughs> that story obviously ended. Irony. <laughs> yeah, ironic title. No, I never saw The NeverEnding Story. But well, I don't know if it's from 1986. I, I kind of took a took a flyer there but go on took a flyer okay in the movie ruthless people 1984 okay judge reinhold judge reinhold told you there would be no judge reinhold you were hoping judge reinhold would come up on this podcast well Uh you're in luck because now he has i believe it was judge reinhold in the movie ruthless people judge reinhold wants to be a ruthless kidnapper but he's too nice and there's a scene where he's saying to his wife that they need to be more ruthless. But while he's saying it, he's gently removing a spider from his kitchen and setting it down outside. 
So uh-huh. that's an ironic gap between what he's saying and what he's doing. And then and- he suddenly then he suddenly realizes what he's doing and he goes back outside to step on the spider. But so you think it's more powerful because he doesn't realize it and then midway through he realizes it and tries to take action as opposed to Captain or whatever Renault who un- understands that he's being ironic as he's doing it. Or, he or understands least... that there is a gap between what he is saying and what he actually, you know, is doing. Yeah. And uh, I just, I wanted to find a good example. I had to go to Ruthless People to find a good example of something where we watching are like, oh, it's so ironic that this person is saying one thing and doing you, the opposite. You gotta go right back to the classics. You, you gotta, gotta go, go to, to Ruthless Judge People Reinhold. sometimes. Yeah. Um, the, the um, I mean, the thing is, like, you uh, describing it um, like, I haven't seen Ruthless People, but it sounds kind of obvious, you know? Like, I, I mean, maybe it's done in a subtle way. Like, No, just... it's not done in a subtle way at all. It's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's why it's funny, you know? Well, okay, I mean, but that's why, that's why Captain Renault is good, is because it's subtle. It's because we understand uh, what, uh, uh, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, like we, yeah. we, like, we, like, we have met and we have been hypocritical in which we have kind of, in the moment, said one thing and done another but you and i have rarely done a thing that was uh, like contrary to what we said we were going to do somebody and then we suddenly realize it and then we try to reverse it you know what i mean like one is more human than the other like i believe that a captain renault moment could happen in the world more easily more readily than i could believe that judge reinhold moment happening in the real world you know the, yeah. the judge reinhold moment seems written the the uh the renault thing seems oh that happens every day yeah. Oh, and it's, I mean, it's become an immortal scene, but, uh, right. and the way that ruthless people has not, but, uh, but so, I mean, I just, I, that, I mean I, something could be mathematically clean to make your point, but be bad drama. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I can't, I can't speak to how great ruthless people is. I think that's the only thing that stayed with me, but, uh, <laughs> but I was just, I was searching for a perfect example of yeah. what I was talking about, a gap between what we're seeing them do and what they're saying that we could see that they couldn't see. And that uh-huh. was a good example that occurred to me. Okay, so let's go ahead and get to number 10. Ironic contrast between what the character says and what the audience knows. So Ilsa says she'll meet Rick at the train station, but we know that she won't have the chance. Before Bart goes to meet Mongo, he says that he can't be as menacing as people say, but we've met Mongo and we know better. So we know that there's a huge gap here between what Bart knows and what we know. Says. Obviously, so many songs in Mulan talk about this. I'll make a man out of you. What do we want? We want a girl worth fighting for. They don't realize they're talking to a girl who is worth fighting for. Says, boys, you know, you'll see when we're through. Boys will gladly go to war for you. Well, that turns out to be true in very ironic ways. You'll bring honor to us all. There's huge ironic contrast between what the character says and what the audience knows. A big part of all three of these movies. Number 11, ironic tone. We've already discussed ironic tone. Let's keep moving past that. Number 12. So now let's talk about various types of ironic theme. Thematic ironies every story could have. The story's ironic thematic dilemma. So this is another big thing we talk about. We could get a whole episode out of this, talking about good versus good or bad versus bad. What do you mean good versus good? So most stories are good versus good. If a story is good versus evil, then it's a dull, flat, uninteresting story. If a story is good versus good, then it's an interesting, ironic, lively story. For instance, so in, you know, Casablanca, obviously you've got love versus patriotism. And those are both good things. You know, romantic love versus love of country. Love of a woman versus love of your country. Those are both good things. And he has to choose between those two goods. Blazing Saddles, you've got, you know, classic Western dichotomy of individualism versus solidarity. Is it better to stand up for yourself or to stand up for your community? 
And when did, when does it when does that kind of come into question in, in in Blazing Saddles? Eventually, he is able to bring peace. He is able to get better jobs for all the track layers. And he is at first he decides to stand up for himself with his bosses by just trying to kill his boss. Mm-hmm. And he is just he is just that's individualism. That's individualism. Well, I mean, I think another good verse is good is defying people. Like, it's good to defy people, and it's also good to win people over. You know, this is getting into Obama. I think you were you were very his his situation. God, this movie is totally about Obama. This is this is this is the closest thing we're ever going to get to an Obama biopic. I mean, I say ever going to get. Obviously, we'll eventually get Obama biopic. There, there already was an Obama pick. There was an Obama pick about uh, Obama and Michelle's first date. The closest um, thing we have, it, but... the closest thing we have to a movie about the Obama years is Blazing Saddles, and it's the the great the great problem with the Obama years. I mean, the great his great unbearable burden was this idea of like, do you try to make these people see the light, or do you try to set them right? Do you try to set people right, or do you try to bring them along? And do you say to do, people? What do you mean? Do you defy what do you people? mean? Set them right. Does he try to put the townspeople in their place, or does he try to elevate them? And those are both good things. Putting them in their place is a good thing. Elevating them is a good thing. Uh-huh. And he has to choose between those goods. Okay, this is much more Just like interesting Obama did. than individualism versus yeah. solidarity. So, okay, this this movie is about Obama. It's become a more interesting <laughs> movie now. Uh, it because, is uh, because Matt, because of, because of my analysis. Uh, um, yeah. But <laughs> okay, so then, yeah. So the, right. So those are all examples of. I think that is. I think that is a very good point. That that is the the true good versus good in Blazing Saddles, and then obviously in Mulan. So you've got good versus good, which would be. Protecting your family versus telling the truth. Those are both good things. It's good to protect your family. It's good to tell the truth, but you can't do both at the same time. Then you've also got bad versus bad, which is it would be bad if her father dies, and it would be bad if her father was dishonored. And mm-hmm. she has to choose between like, okay, I must dishonor my father in order to save his life. So I, mm-hmm. you know, death versus dishonor, classic bad versus bad choice. So then you talk about other smaller ironic dilemmas along the way and which characters must consistently choose between goods or evils throughout your story. So This is like you know, a scene-by-scene kind of thing. Yeah, scene-by-scene scene ironic dilemmas. So, like, Catherine Micah just has this moment where it's like, hey, everybody, we're going to have a meeting of the resistance. And by the way, you could get killed for going. And... Just to watch this movie, I mean, it's just really amazing watching Casablanca now and realizing, like, they made this movie when they didn't know how the war was going to end. Yeah, it came out in 1942. (laughs) Like, this movie was made at the height of the war, and for all they knew, things would go badly. And they were making just an incredibly brave movie. They were just making a movie about a situation that was very much up in the air. And it was, it's just talk about a movie with real life national pain, like to make a movie that just faces the issues of the war head on while it's going on. A movie that well, talks what, about what, concentration what? camps at a time when people yeah. are not talking about concentration camps. So then that brings us to the final one, which is the ironic final outcome, which is separate from the ironic concept and separate from the ironic thematic dilemma. So in Casablanca, Rick finds fulfillment by sending away the woman he loves. And, right. and, and, and he settles. also, not only that, he also joins the resistance with Renault. <laughs> yeah. Renault <laughs> also joins the resistance, which that's, I saw, the, um, you know, Casablanca many years ago. I had forgotten that Renault joins the resistance. I just thought they became pals. He throws I'm, away the Vichy water. So then Blazing Saddles, 
Bart saves the town, but then he is too much of a discontent person to stay in the town and to actually, you know, remain in the town. This is something that's classic in Westerns. In, in that sense, like, he says, wherever there is justice, I will go. Wherever there, and then everybody just, and the town just says, bullshit! <laughs> right? So they are in on that irony, right? Right? They, they just like, that's a meta moment. That's not an ironic moment. It's in them saying, you're just doing a thing that we see in Westerns. I mean, if there was an irony there, which they did not play out, it would be like, oh, um, I can't stay here because you guys, even after what I did for you, you're still racist to me. But they didn't play that part out. What they did is they did a meta move, not an ironic move, in which he, he said a speech that you ordinarily hear in Westerns, and then they all called him out on it. And then he rode off in the sunset with his friend. And then they ostentatiously get off their horses and get into a car and drive <laughs> away. That is not ironic, Matt. That is meta. That is, I would call meta a form of irony, but okay. And then Mulan, the final irony in Mulan is that she ends up getting a guy, you know, through this, this whole movie, she said, instead of trying to get a guy, I'm going to become a great warrior and save all of China. And then she ends up getting the guy after all. But she was kind of, of a little that. bit uh, moony-eyed to him at several points during the movie. Right. But she was in no way making the choice to get the guy at any point during the movie. Right. And ironically, all of her choosing not to get the guy moments ended up in her getting the guy. So, okay. So this is irony. Do you think I've made my fundamental point about how, I mean, do you agree? I mean, my most daring point is when I say irony is the heart of meaning. When I say irony is the source of all meaning, that if any, if any detail in your story is going to be meaningful, it is going to be ironic. Do you I think agree you, with that? You with are, that point? you are fundamentally true. Uh, I, I think that, we as humans hate simple truths. We yes. hate to hear two plus two equals four. We want to hear two plus two actually equals five. And I'm going to tell you the complicated story of why that's true. We also know that there's a gap between our expectation and our reality. And we want to see that reflected back at us. Um, we, we don't want to see, they, this is why like Paradise Lost uh, when Milton wrote it, and then like it turns out that Satan became a more interesting and satisfying character than God or Jesus, um, and, and and then uh, Adam. Blake, Blake, yeah, or Adam, and then and, and although and maybe Milton made it and meant it, and maybe he didn't, but Blake, I think, put his finger on the problem when he said Milton was of the devil's you know side and didn't know it, like because the devil is the most interesting character in Paradise Lost because he's the character who embodies the contradictions, embodies the irony. Uh, yeah. um, he is I the agree. highest angel and he went down to the lowest place. He understands people better than God does. Um, yeah. and, and yet he's the one who's committed to bringing the people down. Um, th this is why uh, Paradise Lost is a great poem, maybe against Milton's wishes. Uh, um, uh, but maybe Milton was, according to Stanley Fish, uh, smarter than even that is like oh yes the very fact that you find the devil to be um more compelling just shows up your sinfulness right uh, uh, and, and so like he has a book called surprised by sin that goes into this just great but, which is another level of irony but just to go back to the main point yes irony is where drama lives um we have uh somebody whose father gets killed by his uncle He's very indecisive, but he's also an investigator. Um, Hamlet, 
right? Like right. He, he can't make a decision one way or the other until he makes a lot of bad decisions very quickly at the end. If you have two things that seem to be, they can't live in the same box and you put them in the same box, it creates meaning. And th- you, you see this in, this, in, in titles. Like uh, Matt, you've said this, like you hate when a title of a book is like The Assassin's Sword or like, yeah. right? Or, or what else? Well, what's another one that you hate? Um, like well, the I mean, I talk sword. about, yeah, I talk about how like, you know, Deadly Assassin or The Night You're Sword right. or whatever. Right. Or, but I mean, I even go through the unwritten movies in my book. I go through unwritten movies. I've talked about the thing. I talk about like, there'll be a movie I love that has a bad title. Like The Court Jester is a bad title right. because like, well, obviously The Jester is a court. That's There's nothing ironic about a court jester or Shoot to Kill. You know, Shoot right, to Kill right. is a terrible title. There's nothing You're ironic about the title to Shoot to Kill. But right. it's like, you're always going to shoot to kill. But Blast of Silence is a great title. Anything where there's an inherent ironic contradiction in the title, already you're off to a good start. And it doesn't even have to be necessarily ironic. In fact, sometimes irony might make it go too mechanically to just contradiction. But if you think about a title, one of the best titles of all time, of the one of the most kind of evocative titles, and you want to read this as soon as you I tell you the title, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what a great like, title. It's great because you have something that's big and full of life, a lion, but it's natural. And then you have something that's supernatural, a witch. And then you have something that's just ordinary, that's in your own house, a wardrobe. And those three things pull against each other. They pull away from each other, I mean to say, in, in such uh, strong ways that you feel the tension between them. Now, C.S. Lewis didn't know how good a title that was because he also had a title, The Silver Chair. Who gives a <laughs> shit, you know? Uh, um, the, uh, but but uh, Prince Caspian, fuck you. But, but, like, <laughs> no, but, but you, don't would... need, you don't want to back yourself into a situation where every title has to be a great title. Prince no, no, Caspian no, no, is a fine title. The Silver Chair is a fine title. It's fine. You know, it's fine for the second or third yes, or fourth. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you know it's a great t- you know it's a better title than Prince Caspian or the Silver Chair? The Horse and His Boy. <laughs> That's a great title. That's a great title <laughs> and it totally gets to the heart of what that book is about. Um and you, I'll tell you the two titles you might remember from that are Lion Witch in the Wardrobe and The Horse and His Boy. It may be the oh, yeah. last battle. Those are great titles. Those because there's titles. no last battle obviously. But but like The Horse and His Boy and Lion Witch those are great. You help yourself by having a title in which he has two or more, like Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, competing things that uh, are pulling against each other. Might I say, Matt? Yes, you may. The Order of Oddfish. That's a great title. Order of Oddfish is a great title. That certainly made me want to read the book back before I had any idea who you were. I was like, oh, sure. There's this dude, James Kennedy. I'm going to meet him. He wrote a book. That sounds like a good book. I'll read that book, The Order of Oddfish. There's an order, but it's also odd. Those two things are pulling Order against each other. There you go. That's two a different directions. That's a and fundamentally yet, ironic title. Just like Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, there's three things. You got the third heat, like they say in 30 Rock. <laughs> um, three types uh, of heat. And so Order of Oddfish, you have Order, that, which is one thing. Odd, which is in contradistinction to it. And then Fish, which is just life. There's a lively thing here. So we've got yeah. one thing that's law, one thing that's against law, and one thing that's just life. And the three things pull against each other. And so I, I, I think you notice how there's been a, what do you call it, a trend recently with YA books that have a blank of X and Y? No, I haven't been keeping up. So um, I love Lainey Taylor. 
She's a really good writer. But her books follow a certain YA kind of orthodoxy, such as she's got, her books are The Daughter of Smoke and Bone, and then The Days of Blood and Starlight, and then The Dreams of Gods and Monsters. You see where this is going? Like, um, the, even our, our good friend M.T. Anderson, he was bullied into doing this kind of titles, such as The Empire of Gut and Bone. You see, the noun of noun and noun, in which, like, the, the three nouns have a kind of pull against each other, ironically. And you can find endless examples of this in YA. It turned into a formula. In a formula in which people, actually, in fact, um, uh, M.T. Anderson did not want to call his book to be called The Empire of Gut and Bone. He wanted it to be called The Empire of the Innards. And they said, no. <laughs> oh, that's so much better. And, 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 and they said, no, no, no. There, there's a certain trend right now called The Empire of Gut and Bone. And so that, uh, that's what happened. Even like these kind of ironies can ossify into a formula. But I don't think you can go wrong by taking two or even better, three things that are uh, kind of pulling in three different directions and find a way to put them all into one title. Okay, James, it is late. It is midnight. I think we've had a lot of good points here. I think this is good. I think we've, so we're, we're basically in agreement tonight. We're not in agreement tonight about how well Blazing Saddles has aged, but we are in general agreement tonight about all sorts of wonderful types of irony you can use to fuel your story. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, irony is absolutely essential. It's the engine, if you put it in your story, that'll keep on giving. You, you might find if you write a story and it has no irony in it, you're going to work hard to grind out chapter after chapter because you won't find a way to make it keep on going. But if you put this secret engine of irony in it, you will find that situations and dialogue will just, of their own accord, just keep popping up because it is the oil that keeps the engine going. Yeah. I definitely think so. I think good versus evil is never going to work very well. Good versus good is going to work much better. I think the more ironic thing is, the more ironic every aspect of your storytelling is, the better it's going to be. Great. Okay. We will go ahead and we will go ahead and come back in maybe two weeks. I don't know. We'll see. At some point, we've talked about maybe starting even doing some Patreon. That's something where once I am going to have some more free time here soon, I'm going to look into, and maybe even some Patreon content. I don't know. We're going to figure that out. Yeah. Okay. Well, James, thanks so much. We will be back soon, uh, sooner, hopefully, rather than later. This was a fun episode. We will talk to you soon, America. All right. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.